Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. here to bring you the case of the Brenizer family. Oh, yes. <laughs> Big Ope here. So, uh, to set the scene a little bit, this case takes us to Cushing, Wisconsin. Where's that? Good question. It's in the middle of nowhere. So, Cushing, Wisconsin is a very, very, very small town in Polk County, Wisconsin, which is about 60 miles from the Twin Cities of Minneapolis. So, it's on the state line, basically in, like, northwest Wisconsin. Can we put it in a mitten? No, it's Wisconsin. Damn it. Yeah, sorry. We can put it on like a... And the mitten of the mangle thumb. Yeah, no, don't besmirch the mitten. It's like a mangled <laughs> cheese curd. Okay. But if it's, it's like there. Okay, got yeah. it. So we're in this like very, very, very small town. When I say a small town, I'm talking 675 people. Oh. So very small. It's actually considered an unincorporated community. There's just nothing out there. Uh, there's a decent degree of um, tourism mm-hmm. in the summer. Because it's beautiful, as everything out there is. Hills and um, state parks. It's, like, nestled in all these national forests and stuff. So it's a beautiful place. Most of the people that live there year-round are in the dairy industry. Okay, yeah. So it's basically a farming community. So uh, it's a beautiful farming community. And so we've got uh, the Brenizer family, uh, which is comprised of Rick Brenizer, who's 35 years old, uh, and Ruth, his common-law wife. Uh, she was 31. Her last name was Berenson. And so they had both been previously married. So they're coming to this in a blended family. So uh, Rick had one son, Bruce. And then Ruth had two daughters. Heidi was 10 and Mindy was 7. Bruce was 15. I should have said that. And then they together had a daughter, Crystal, who was 5 at the time uh, of this case. So uh, Rick had a previous marriage, obviously, that that gave the world Bruce. His ex-wife was also remarried. And had a son, Jesse. So there's a lot of, like, blended family dynamics going on here. We don't know that much about Ruth's first marriage, but... But we love a blended family. We love a blended family. And it sounds, like, pretty peaceful. Mm -hmm. This case takes us to April of 1991. Mm -hmm. So we're going back. We're going back. This family, they live in this little trailer. It's a single-wide trailer out in the woods outside of Cushing. Like, this little skinny trailer, mm-hmm. you couldn't see the road, you wouldn't be able to see your neighbors. My ideal environment. Yes, until I get to the next part. Yeah. But there also had no electricity, no running water, and no indoor plumbing. I retract my statement. Yes. So they were living very much off the grid. Like, we're talking about northern Wisconsin wilderness. People are used to being a part of the earth up there, right? Like, it's very farming and everything, but they were even further off the grid than the average Cushing resident. Okay. So was that by choice? That's the question. All of my research tells me that it was probably more by choice than not. Okay. But when you see images of the trailer, it does speak to a degree of poverty. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was by choice, at least as far as some complaints that would kind of come up later about the situation. So this family's living in the trailer going along on their, like, daily life or whatever. 
Uh, so on uh, April 22nd, 1991, the family excluding Bruce, so we're talking Rick, Ruth, and the three girls, Crystal, Heidi, and Mindy, they were going, planning to go to the Twin Cities mm-hmm. uh, to go shopping at Menards. Saving money at Menards. Precisely. So Rick worked as a fencing contractor and also a motel clerk, so uh, likely he was planning to go get some fencing supplies, right? Nothing out of the ordinary about that. They told Bruce, like, okay, we'll be home by probably 11 at night, you know, go about your business, be a 15-year-old boy, and just be at home and and hang out or whatever. So they, yeah, or whatever. <laughs> or whatever, yeah. 15-year-old boy. Yeah, what you're going to do. So they allegedly left. Next day, which is April 23rd, Bruce calls the police and says, my family never came home. Oh. Yeah. He reports them missing. So, of course, a 15-year-old kid. God, it's so weird to report your parents missing. I know. Could you imagine that feeling of, like, you know, he probably went to bed. Like, oh, they're running late. Here we go. Again, the mundaneness. I hate it. totally. And everything is, like, it's so remote. It's so middle of nowhere. Like, you'd have to go out to the suburban Twin Cities to do any of your shopping. Uh, And that would have been, like, an hour of a drive, Mm -hmm. right? So it was just, it was so remote, so out there. The community starts to rally around this kid, obviously, because his family is missing. And luckily, his mom lived uh, nearby, and so he was able to stay with his mom uh, kind of while people were looking for his family. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's three little girls involved. So this is, you know, it's pretty heavy. Like, it's not. And so they kind of start looking into, like, what was going on in the days before. Mm -hmm. By all accounts, Bruce, um, not Bruce, Rick, the dad, he was working. He was behaving normally. Um, He was, like, super well-respected by his colleagues. I found lots of news clippings and references to just what a great worker he was. And, you know, you trusted him. He was, like, a nice guy. So nothing out of ordinary about his behavior. Mm -hmm. Not a lot is known about Ruth. We do know that somewhere in the space of time before they disappeared, that Ruth had expressed some dissatisfaction with the state of the of living in the trailer. Okay. Um, the nature of that dissatisfaction, not totally sure. Mm-hmm. But we know through some family sources and through some of the dis- uh, depositions that came up later that there was some dissatisfaction expressed by her about the situation. Okay. Not totally known again what that was. So they're missing. So everyone is just like kind of rallying around this kid. Like we need to take care of him. He's 15. He's yeah. alone. His family's missing. He's so, a little bunny. Yeah. And so it's 1991, yeah. right? So there was not a ton of coverage on this case, like, outside of Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. But in Minnesota, because it was so close to the Twin Cities. But yeah. um, so there's not a ton of information just about them. And, of course, they were living so far off the grid. So there's, like, one picture of the whole family. And it's, like, a small community, so it's kind of... Small communities tend to be really insular, and it's like, yes. we'll take care of this boy. Right, totally. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, like, there's no question. Like, we're just going to take care and kind of wrap our arms around somebody in a situation, right? So so that's kind of how it starts. And everything, again, like, by all accounts, looks pretty harmonious. Like, there's not a ton of acrimony in the previous marriages, we know this dissatisfaction that Ruth had expressed, but we don't know much more than that mm-hmm. about the state of everything, other than that everything seemed normal. I hate it. I hate when things seem normal. I know. I don't like it. I, I don't trust normal. I don't trust normal either. I'm just like, let's fuck some shit up so at least I know what's going on. I don't like normal and I don't like charisma. 
Nope, you really don't. Do I you? don't. Yeah. Luckily, we're so awkward. Love it. And then we're so abnormal. Yeah, God. All right, oh. Let's talk more about this murder. Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> I didn't say murder yet, did I? It, it's a, it's our thing. Yeah. We're doing this as our thing. Okay, you're right. So okay. I have paper notes today, so I'm just like shuffling all my papers here. I love the sound of paper person. notes shuffling. Good, me too. This search is launched, mm-hmm. right? So at first it is a land and air search. And there's nothing found. How much can, searches. like, an air search find? Like, to be honest, like, the with the tree cover right. and all of that. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they suspended it very shortly thereafter. Okay. Because it's just so, it's heavily forested out there. There's just not much to see. Mm-hmm. And they were driving a station wagon, so it, it would have been small. If they were to spot the car, it would have been small. You're mm-hmm. not going to find it from the air. So they focused more on the ground search. And um, the community... Of course, really, really responds, yeah. right? So they're they're in support of Bruce. They're you know supporting his mom. Like his family is missing. This is this really scary situation. And then uh, in the schools, they start bringing in counselors for the kids. You know, their classmates have gone missing, and so they're bringing mm-hmm. in all this support, all this infrastructure for this community. Which, when you think about it, for such a small town, That's it's actually crazy. a really cool response yeah. to bring in counselors and stuff for those kids. Like mm-hmm. my heart, just like. As an educator, my heart just like thumped. My little psychologist mind is like trauma. I know. Yeah. So I'm like, and this is 1991 we're talking about too, in like rural Wisconsin. I'm so proud of them. I know. So what a good response, right? And that too had been like kind of the last time that somebody outside of the family saw them. So the girls were picked up from school. Okay. Um, prior to being driven down to by like a family member by the parent. Yeah. So it's like by school gone exactly okay yeah, yeah, yeah. uh potentially they were also spotted at the bank like withdrawing money from the atm so again very normal you're gonna go shopping mm-hmm. you're gonna go it's 1991 yes yes you're not right before you go pick up your new cousin on the block tape. exactly yeah. <laughs> did you just say new cousin on the block new, and new kids on the block <laughs> i like that okay <laughs> so counters are brought in everything is just like it's heating up heating up heating up and so things are happening fast here, okay? On uh, May 11th, so we're talking, like, within just a couple of weeks, a fisherman. Mm-hmm. So it never ends well when we talk about fishermen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So a fisherman is out fishing in his favorite trout stream. No. Yep. And he happens upon a burnt-out vehicle. Yeah. I don't know where this is going. No, and your ex are not going to like it in a little bit. I'm getting vibes. It's, it's, the vibes are not good. I don't like the vibes I'm getting. No, yeah, they're not good. They're not good vibes. I, I said good vibes only. No, you didn't. You didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I say that kind of shit. That's not you shit. I say bad vibes. Yeah, you're like, I need bad vibes only. Bad vibes only. That's right. I need an auntie shirt. <laughs> no, there are like so many bad vibes in this case that just like as I was researching it, it had me like fucked up. Yeah. And I was like, for a case I had never heard of yeah. that has like next to no media coverage, like I was digging into like the bowels of the Wisconsin State Journal for like, not its mm-hmm. literal bowels, because that's gross, but like its figure of bowels. <laughs> It's digital vowels. Yes. I was just, like, combing through its digi vowels, like, fucking losing my mind trying to figure out what was going on here. So, the car is found. Okay. Well, a car is found, I should say. So, the car... Spoiler alerts. Yeah. 
the car is burnt out like beyond any burnt car I've ever seen. Like, and I've seen a lot of burnt cars in Detroit, but yeah. like <laughs> they, it is so it's incinerated like to a degree where it's just the frame mm-hmm. basically, and there's nothing left inside the car essentially. What is inside the car is bone fragments. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so immediately forensics comes out, the the police come out, the sheriff, kind of sheriff, um, they're all there. And right away, the forensics guys are like, this is multiple people. There's yeah. so much fragmentation here. It's multiple people. But the car, and I like, I can't emphasize enough, when you look at images of this car, it's like the heat that must have transpired to get that car to be broken down that far. There was next to no way to recover anything but like shards, literal shards of bone. Oh my god! Yeah. So basically, like how it would come out of the crematorium is how it looked. Oh my god! Yeah. So I can't believe that they knew. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So like with this case, I'm actually, and again, shocking, but I'm fairly impressed by investigation in this case. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like this is rural. Wisconsin we're talking about we're not talking about like some big city PD that's used to dealing with shit right yeah so the car is found the bones are found and obviously they're sent off for analysis how many people can we get any kind of identification Mm -hmm. like can we pull anything off of it 91 we don't have DNA technology like baby DNA technology yeah but it's not like popping so we don't have really first used in court in 1987 I'm such a nerd I love it factoid that's right I love this factoid so there's not much to go on right Mm -hmm. so in nearby St. Croix Falls which is the county seat of Wisconsin so the we're in kind of that like limbo space where the whatever remains are there have been sent off to the lab, right? Yeah. And we're just kind of waiting to see what happens. So on May 15th, some graffiti appears mm-hmm. on a Masonic temple Ooh. in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, which is the county seat for Polk County. We're bringing in the Freemasons, bringing in the we Freemasons. We sure are. And we love a Freemason, do we not? Yes. We yes. love it. We love it. So what the graffiti says is a reference to Satan, Sat, Satan, Satan worship. Satan worship, which I do regularly. Um, I, I I can see you yes. like worshiping from Satan. Um, anyway, Satan. Satan. I didn't know we were getting already into Satanic panic, and I'm oh, so yes. psyched. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> so um, this graffiti references Satanic worship and death by fire. So it appears on May 15th, or it's in that neighborhood of May 15th is when somebody finds it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, shit, we just found this car burnt out. So now all these other theories start to pop up. We got fire. We got Freemasons. We yes. got Satan. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and Satan. We have it all, people. So, um. Satan would be a vegan. I know, right? Hey. <laughs> so... We've got all these theories starting to pop up. One theory is that they were involved in some kind of devil worship, especially Rick. Another theory was that, uh, again, Rick was, this is just a theory. There's nothing to substantiate this, that he was wrapped up in drugs and that some drug dealers from Minneapolis had, you know, he had crossed them in some way and he was going to make the family, they were going to make the family pay. It's a very small town, big city. It is, yeah. So you get that kind of weird dichotomy going on where 
you know, where that very well could, you know, people's minds are going to go that way, right? Yeah. So, uh, so you've got this satanic panic, and it's early 90s, so we're still in that satanic panic era where people really were scared about that, you know, when you think about the rural Midwest. Oh, yeah. People oh, yeah. are going to be scared about it, right? This graffiti gets discovered two days before the lab comes back. And the lab is able to say this. They were able to find enough teeth in the car to identify the remains of Rick, Brent Liner, and Ruth Aronson. Okay. So the parents. The other teeth they found in the car, there wasn't enough records to trace it back to the girls. Okay. But they were juvenile teeth. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we can assume mm -hmm. by deduction that all three of the children were also in the room. So that's the information that we have as a 517. Life in this town is just turned upside down. Right? Stopped. I mean, yeah. there's only 600 people in the town. Yeah. And the whole thing three of them down. went missing. Yeah, five of them. Three five kids and two parents. Yeah. Like almost 1% of the town went missing. Yeah. So it is just like, it's so, it's just like time stands still when this kind of shit happens, mm -hmm. right? Like time stands still. And when you look at, a, there's like one picture that kind of survives of this family mm -hmm. prior to this. And they're beautiful. I mean, they've got this like, you know, it's the early 90s. So you got that like early 90s style going on. But Ruth is like gorgeous, She's, like, thick, dark hair. The little girls look just like her, this beautiful, thick, dark hair. And Rick is just like beaming and like, you know, he looks like a proud papa and Bruce is just like a 15 year old boy chilling with his big 90s glasses in the background, <laughs> you know? So it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And so the ID the teeth on May 18th, the newspapers report that a juvenile has been taken into custody. Oh, so this is fast, right? My timeline's pretty quick here. We don't know who that juvenile is. Okay. Obviously at this point, everyone's just like, what's happening who was it like from the, from the same town right yes okay yes, yes. there's only so many options right exactly there's only so many options and who's a juvenile but mr bruce so 15 year old bruce uh we find out that he was the one taken into custody okay <laughs> how that happens is where things get interesting what happens is a lawyer calls the Polk County Sheriff's Office mm -hmm. and says, I have somebody here who knows something about the Brenziner case. Okay. And obviously the police are like, fantastic. Who is it? Mm -hmm. Another juvenile. His name is Jesse Anderson. Okay. He is Bruce's stepbrother. So he is his mom's son from that other marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. So Jesse Anderson says, I'll tell you everything. If I'm given immunity in this case. Okay. And law enforcement says, okay, we'll do that. So Jesse unleashes the story. On April 20th, which is a few days before the family allegedly went to Menards, mm -hmm. Bruce yeah. comes over and they have like a sleepover and they're just like hanging out. Nothing weird. Mm -hmm. Jesse is insistent. There's nothing strange about like Bruce's attitude. Nothing was off kilter. He didn't say anything. Then on Sunday, Bruce calls Jesse and he says, I did it. Oh, what? Yeah. Jesse says, did what? Because he's, he's clueless. Get laid? Like, right. 15 year old 15, boy, that would be my do. first, yeah. like. He says, they're all dead. 
that's what he says to Jesse on the phone. So Jesse, of course, expresses some disbelief. Yeah. What do you mean? What happened? What's going on? I'm coming over. So Jesse drives over. And Jesse claims that Bruce then showed him the bodies of his dad, Rick, his stepmom, Ruth, and his three sisters. What? Yeah. Yeah. So... So he says had before, before he set the car on fire. Correct. Okay. Yeah. 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 Jesse, being the good brother that he is, says, well, I'll help you. What? Yeah. But first, Bruce gives him a tour of the entire situation. So here's what happened. Deep breath. I know. I know. Like, that was the most questionable deep breath I ever took. It wasn't even that deep. Yeah. It was not a yoga breath. Yeah. No, it wasn't. So before they can set off to, like, go deal with this, Bruce wants to take him on a tour of what happened. And this is... I guess bros being bros. I guess. But it, it wrecked me. So Rick came out first, and Bruce allegedly shoots him with a deer rifle through the window. On purpose? On purpose. Yep. Then Ruth comes home with the girls and tries to call police, but the lines are cut because Bruce allegedly cuts the lines. He then executes Ruth, mm-hmm. like back of the head, bullet to the back of the head. Just execution style cold blood right he then ties up Heidi and Mindy with um, bailing twine while he kind of figures out what to do so then seemed pretty together up until then yeah right so allegedly he hears the girl and this is again this is Jesse's account we don't hear any of this from Bruce Uh this is Jesse telling us right so allegedly Bruce hears the two girls trying to figure out how to escape. And that, according to Jesse, is when he decides to kill him. Kill the girls. Yeah. Then the little one, Crystal. No. Yeah. Crystal comes in. She was five. And she was beautiful. And he shoots her in the head. We're gonna... Is there a why behind all of this? Good question. Very good question. The why that we know up to this point is the one thing that Bruce had ever said to Jesse was that he was tired of living in the trailer. He felt like he wanted indoor plumbing. He felt deprived by the living conditions. There are so many ways to do that that don't include murdering your entire family. Seriously. Including little girls. Uh, And when you do see, there was some police footage I found of the trailer. And when you go inside, it was like... Rough living conditions. Okay. Like, very messy, very dirty, very cramped. Like, you, it would be hard to imagine. I mean, a family of of six is a lot. I grew up in a family of six. Yeah, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Yeah. We lived in a three-bedroom house, and it was cramped enough. Yeah, totally. And so you could see it being a challenging place to mm-hmm. live. That's what we know. Mm-hmm. And those are the grounds by which Bruce is taken into custody as a 15-year-old. Okay. Yeah. Wait, so the friend, how did we get from, like, that to, like, ashes, bone ashes? Right. So that's where there's kind of, like, very little story. Okay. So what we know is that Jesse agreed to help Bruce dispose of the bodies. Mm -hmm. So what it sounds like 
is that they loaded up into the station wagon mm -hmm. and then a second vehicle, obviously. So one drives a station wagon, one drives a second vehicle to this location in the woods in Sterling Township, which is just like 10 miles outside of Cushing, uh, where they have a gas can and they incinerate the car. That's all we know. And then they leave in the other vehicle and go back home and Bruce gets through the night and then calls and reports his family missing the next day. That is a chapter of the bro code I was unfamiliar with. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Like, it feels like there should be a caveat where you don't help your bro burn the bodies of his entire family. Yeah. And, like, what just keeps getting so in my head about this, other than just the pure tragedy of it, Yeah, is this is a 15-year-old boy. Yeah, that's what, like, yeah. they're babies. Yeah, and Jesse was 17, so he was also a child. And, like, this is the age of kid I work with. It's hard to imagine, like, the wherewithal and the... These are my favorite, like, age group to yeah. work with. And they're so disorganized. And they're so, like, impulsive. But also, like, kind of hard-headed. Totally. I can imagine the fights of, like, I don't want to live here anymore. And right. I deserve... Of, of course. I can imagine that. Yes. Yes. But then two teenagers doing all of this. Yeah. I just... Yeah. And the pure, like, what we know, what's on record is that Bruce did it. Mm -hmm. And Jesse immediately, like, basically immediately upon hearing it, came over to help. What? And Bruce is like, let me show you around. Let me walk you through. Yeah. Those poor babies. Yeah. And those poor, poor parents. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not a ton of information out there as far as forensics because there was very, very little left. But mm -hmm. some of what we do know as far as the conditions, especially under which little girls died, is pretty horrific. So the fact that they were burned is like, it's not the worst thing that happened to them by any means. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, so... Is there... This is, like, where my psychology mind comes in, of, like... Do we know anything about his upbringing that would have made him that cold? It's coming. Okay. Kind of. I'm, I'm gonna... All right, I'm gonna sit. Yeah, the problem is, is that there's so little other evidence. Okay. It's Jesse's story. Yeah. It's what very little physical evidence there is. Bruce says almost nothing in court mm -hmm. later. Almost nothing. So he's obviously, he's taken in and he stands trial, right? This is where I get like really, really, really mad. He is charged as an adult, which, <laughs> yeah, I know. I have such, yeah. that's not the part I'm mad at though. I know. I just, I have thoughts. Hmm. There is some documentation that indicates that there was mutilation of corpses, one decapitation, mm -hmm. and other body parts found in a duffel bag on the property. Oh my god! Yeah. Without giving a lot of detail, the ones that went through the worst were the little girls. So uh, a machete and a corn knife were used to mutilate. And um, what 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 went down at that trailer in the woods that day? 
would have been absolutely horrific. Yeah. Absolutely horrific. And again, like it's so remote, even though it's a deer rifle, it's Northern Wisconsin. You're not going to think twice about hearing a rifle. Go I was, was going to say, if anyone was in range to hear it, they wouldn't have thought twice about no, it. No, no. And like, you couldn't see, you wouldn't be able to see your neighbors. You yeah. know, there's no, it's so remote. It's so heavily forested. It's so dense. So this is where things get kind of crazy town. Not that it's not crazy town already. Yeah. But things are about to get real fucked up here. Over the course of the summer, and again, things go very fast in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stands trial for the first time on July 12th, that year of 1991. So the murders take place in that space between uh, the 22nd and 23rd mm-hmm. of April. And we see him in court July 12th. So okay. that's quick. So uh, what happens in court will blow your fucking mind. What is argued by Bruce's defense team was first that Bruce withstood a lot of abuse. Okay. He uh, was taunted, allegedly, this is all, you know, alleged, but he was taunted by Rick about his weight and uh, was told that he looked like a girl or that he acted like a girl. His attorney, Alexandrea, framed it as uh, the deprivation of, like, electricity, plumbing, um, running water and stuff. He framed that as abuse. Um, mm. Which, yeah, it's so... You're not going to be able to get away with that. Right. Like, so after ridiculous. a million child protection, like, trainings. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's so... It, but it's so nebulous, right? Yeah. So, so he posits that that was abusive. He also says that Ruth would just stare at him and just, like, antagonize him. Okay. And uh, also that Rick would beat him with a broom. But they also bring forth this documentation that Bruce would threaten suicide at home as a result of this abuse and this behavior. Yep. And that he once threatened to put deer antlers on his head and run around during deer season in the woods to get himself shot. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what he told his family he was going to do. Did they do anything about it? No. And that's the thing. Like, there's no, there's nothing to indicate that anything was ever reported beforehand. Okay. So everything that we know about this family and what went down there Uh is... From this trial and this trial only. And there's no outside, there's no teachers testifying to say they were worried. There's no friends saying no. anything. No, there's nothing. And it's it's so hard because I'm always like, yeah, I believe the victim. I believe that. Right, he, yeah. He's also a perpetrator. Yeah. And who gets to write his own narrative because he killed everybody. Yeah, exactly. Nobody else was there to see it. I mean, Jesse Anderson comes in and helps with the aftermath, but... Mm-hmm. So at this point, it also comes out that Ruth had offered Rick an ultimatum. Either Bruce goes or me and the girls go. Okay. So she too, she expressed a contentious relationship with Bruce. Okay. And this was verified in the paper by, I believe, Ruth's mother. So the grandmother of the girls, um, that Ruth was not happy and that she had offered that ultimatum. So her saying before I, I want to leave, it wasn't just about not having running water. Right. It was about Bruce and his okay. behavior. So all of that leads for his defense team to make the argument that he uh, committed reactive parasite. Okay. 
and that he suffered from episodic disc control. That's a new one. I know, right? That's even a new one for me. Yeah, wow. I was like, that, that's, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Yeah, never yeah. heard that one. Okay. Yeah. I love it when lawyers invent new terms. Mm-hmm. Makes my job so much more fun. I know, right? Yeah. So I was like, nah, I've never heard that before. So intermittent explosive disorder is a thing. I'm sure it is. This is not intermittent explosive disorder. No. Yeah. yeah it can't be. So this is where, like, things get really interesting from a legal perspective, to my mind. The defense team posits this reactive parasite and this episodic discontrol as the reasons. They, at this point, offer this idea that he should be charged as an adult for the murders of of the parents, Rick and Ruth, but that he should be ruled insane with regards to the death of the girls. How does that work? Good question. What the defense team and the defense psychiatric team were able to come up with was this idea that Bruce killed Rick and Ruth in cold blood. I mean, he he murdered them. Like, in touch with reality, in full control. Okay. And then that the girls came in. Yeah. And that when the girls saw their mother, that Bruce thought he was essentially putting them out of their misery. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, it. Uh, it's family annihilator. Yeah. But that's normally a parent. Mm. Like, that's totally the family annihilator, like, mentality. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. No, it's... I'm not buying the insanity plea. Uh, mm. Yeah. No, you know. No. Me neither. But, guess who does? A jury. So, uh, at the end of the day, he gets the following sentence. He gets two life terms for the parents, the death of the parents, Mm -hmm. to be served in state correctional facilities. He also receives a life term for the death of the girls to be served in a mental institution. Right. Yeah. Six of don't have have those on the other, right? Kind of. But, but so how do you serve this concurrently? You can't. Yeah. Right. That's the sentence, though. So they move him first to a mental health facility in Madison. Okay. And so he institutionalized first. And then after the term of his life sentence in that mental institution, he will then be transferred to a state facility. Yeah. I feel like I want to read up more on, like, what happens when you're sentenced to life in a mental health facility. Yeah. Because, like, and I'm sure, I hate the United States because everything differs by state. Yeah. But in some, you serve in the mental health facility until you're ruled competent and then you're moved to prison. Right. So I don't know, and I don't know if that's the case here. No. Okay. No. When they moved him, sounded, by all accounts to me, very, very nebulous. Okay. So he goes to this facility in Madison, and he has a ball. Here's what happens at the facility in Madison. You ready for this? I know. He is so interesting. So when he was in, if I can backtrack for a second, when he was in the courtroom, it was all yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. He didn't show emotion. He didn't make any eye contact with anybody. He was just, like, completely stayed the course, very nondescript. You see pictures of him and it's just like the straight face, Mm -hmm. just nothing there, like nothing there. So he is sent to this facility in Madison. And shortly thereafter, there's a a new controversy. 
where many patients from that facility were taken on field trips, basically. So they're going to go bowling into the movies. So it's a mental health facility. They technically have to be providing treatment. Exactly. Yeah. The community does not want to hear that, though. Of course not. When you see Bruce Bernizer seeing Tommy Boy at the movies, which is where they took him. And that kind of blows back up in the papers. Mm -hmm. Like, what is going on here that this guy killed his family in this, like, brutal, brutal way and is out getting to have a good time at the movies and doing all this fun stuff? And watching Tommy Boy can be a punishment. That is kind of my thought, too. But, (laughs) um, But what do I know? So... You know, time goes by, years and years and years and years go by, right? He's still in this facility. Almost. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, he's sentenced, he's in the facility, he was back in the news for seeing Tommy Boy, and then everything kind of goes quiet again. Until 1999. Bruce is now a grown-ass man. Mm-hmm. What happens to grown-ass men in facilities? They get moved to the adult wing? That's what you would hope. That's not what happened to Bruce. Bruce was... They get their meds reevaluated. Oh, if only. If only now. No, no. Unfortunately, Bruce was involved with a very sexual relationship with a psychiatric nurse at the facility. Oh, fuck that psychiatric nurse. Yeah, wait till... Wait for it, wait for it. Her name was Cossack Agner. You have this face. I know. It's, It's a good face. It's disbelief. It's beautiful. Uh, here are the findings of fact. Is what we know to be absolutely true. Nudie pictures given to Bruce. <gasps> mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Wait, this a like a is a psychiatric nurse. Yes, treating him. Correct. Not just like orderly. Not just like a staff. No. Okay. No. Yeah. Love letters. Erotic literature. Quote, sexually provocative literature. She also provided him alcohol. And on two occasions, we know for sure that they had sex. Once on a picnic, when she got him drunk at the picnic and they had sex. And then one other time in the leisure room, the rec room of the facility. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So by all accounts, she was in love with Bruce. I hate her. I know. And that was what, like, so she ended up serving um, for two counts of sexual assault on a patient. Yeah. So she, you know, she went down for it for sure. But I hope she lost her license. I hope she got fucking all of the consequences. Yeah. I mean, she had to have. But at the end of the day, like, she, what they said on record, her defense team was that she was in love with this man. So, like, think about those professional boundaries. Like, they just did not exist whatsoever. You're not allowed to be in love with your patient. Correct. Right? Like, I'm not crazy. No. No, you can't do that. Okay. I'm a psychologist. Our ethics are probably written slightly differently. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure across the board, you don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, think about the whole run of this case, right? Like, in some ways... It's not the most sensational case out there. It's, it's not a coming of age story. It really is, right? And then he came of age in the leisure room. Hey, oh. So, <laughs> um, Bruce Bernizer is like the ultimate story of how fucking lucky can you get as yeah. a 15 year old offender? Like, 
He commits this horrific crime. Uh-huh. Right? He bros down. Yeah, he bros down with his stepbrother. He then is transferred to this mental health facility. And I'm not saying that that's not the right call. Yeah. By any means, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that he did not receive what most people would think of as... Treatment? An adequate treatment or punishment for the the crime committed. Yeah. So he was served in that, you know, was in that facility. He stayed there, stayed there, stayed there, stayed there until 2013 when the courts ruled that he was, it was time for him to transfer to. Based on what? Based on nothing, that it was just time for him to fucking go. So they sent him off to the facility in Wapun, mm-hmm. but Homeboy is back in the news because there became all this outcry and we're now living in the era of like how people are treated in facilities mm-hmm. and, and we're looking at wrongful convictions and things like that. And so now people are really looking at this and saying, how in the hell was he transferred out of a mental health facility and into state corrections yeah. without any real just reason for that? Yeah. There's this buzz now that they want to put him back in mental health services rather than jail, but he currently sits in jail. I don't even know, like, how to evaluate that, though. No, yeah, you can't. And that's the thing is, like, the police in this case, they did a really good job. I mean, when you think about it, this case was open and shut Mm -hmm. in basically three weeks. That's really impressive. Yeah. But the issue then becomes, like, what happens? What's the aftermath? Yeah. Right? Like, what how good is the evidence that we're using to convict people, mm-hmm. right? And Jesse Anderson was not particularly looked at or scrutinized. Yeah. That okay. was the other thing. Like, he wasn't particularly looked at or scrutinized. He was not, like... Like, they took a statement and were like, all right, thanks, yeah. bro. They granted him his immunity. So he helped dispose, but, you know, he got to be free and clear. So, by all accounts, this is really, I think, a story of what does it mean to be a juvenile offender? Mm-hmm. What's the right and wrong between being charged as an adult and charged as a kid? Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was split down the middle, basically. Yeah. Like, he was charged as an adult for the murder of the of the parents, but then for the little girls, was never going to serve the same type of sentence. But even for that, I don't understand how, basically, they argued he was competent in one moment and not competent in another. Exactly. Yeah, that blows my mind. Without arguing, like, there was a psychosis, there was a dissociation, there was something. Yeah. The other thing about that that kind of gets to me is, like, he was ready. Yeah. Like, they came home kind of in a sequential order. He was ready for Rick to come home. He shot him through the window, which I think is an interesting detail, because he was not, like, what that communicates to me is that he was not up for seeing it happen. Yeah. At that moment. Yeah. He didn't want to be close. Yeah. And that's his dad. Like, he's not by blood related to Ruth. Yeah. They have this contentious relationship, but he was still ready. He was waiting with that rifle. He was prepared to do what he did. Right. And then I would think prepared to continue the rest of it when Ruth came home. Do you think he was really ready to kill the girls? No. Well. Because it doesn't seem like he hesitated with the little one. He didn't. And from from what Jesse said, the story was that he didn't hesitate. I know. But why would you, if you're ready to do it, why would you tie them up first and, like, put them in a room? Yeah. You know? Like, that does communicate to me, like, a second of pause. Mm-hmm. Right? And what am I going to do next? How do I deal with this? Yeah. 
what did I do? Maybe a little panic attack. Yeah, totally. Maybe you had a moment of conscience. Maybe. Yeah. But the second he thought those girls were going to get away, he finished the deed. So then to me, like all of his actions say that like he had an appropriate mindset to know that what he was doing was wrong. Yes. He was in touch with reality. Yes. He remembered it. Yes. Because he told his, his stepbrother. Yep. Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what's interesting about that is what they hinge that ruling on. Mm -hmm. They hinge it on the fact that he thought that he was doing those girls a favor and that at the end of the day is what got him that particular sentence. I'm mad about it. I know it doesn't parse because again, like that to me, and I don't know if I'm crazy, but it takes out the idea of premeditation. Yeah. That speaks to like an in the moment kind of rash, like Uh kind of a dissociative state. Right. I don't know. Yeah. To say like, Oh, I thought I was doing them a favor, but I feel like that's too easy to bullshit. It is. It totally is. And that was like, I feel like not too often. Is it the case where like police do a fine job, but the courts kind of, end up being where it's really nebulous and confusing. But this is one of those times where it was like, I'm reading through the sentencing and I'm reading it and reading it and reading it. And I'm like, this just does not connect all the dots. Yeah. It doesn't connect all the dots. And the fact that we have nothing on record from Bruce. Yeah. For him to say what he did that day. Did he, so he didn't testify to what he did that day? He did not. Wow. Yeah. Jesse did all of it. I just wonder if there's more to it then. I think there kind of had to be. And then for him to then be in a situation later, and obviously these are not connected events, but what is this guy that he does this, goes through this, and then ends up in a sexual relationship with a psychiatric nurse? But then you also said that he he didn't just kill the girls. No. They suffered more. Yes. So then how does, how does the defense team justify that? Right. Right. Yeah, like putting somebody out of their misery does not mean taking them outside and... And doing what he did and to them. Yes. So it doesn't, it does not come together. But because the forensics were not great, right? Like yeah. This is what the forensic team said, but the forensics were not fantastic because mm-hmm. there was nothing fucking there. Yeah. It was 1991. Yeah. There's too much reasonable doubt, right? So yeah, uh, it's a labyrinth of bizarreness. I'm just... Case. I'm honestly shocked that he got sentenced. Yeah. Just because, like, there is so much room for reasonable doubt. Yeah, right? So, like, at the end of the day, like, I was looking through and I'm like, I want to find a case in Wisconsin, because that's where we are. Yay! Yay! Not usually, but just today. Just today. So, I was like, I want to find a Wisconsin case. I want to find something where, like, I haven't heard of it before. I want to learn something new. Kind of cold. Yeah. And then I end up in this rabbit hole of, like... What does an insanity plea or an insanity defense really, really, really mean? They're actually really hard to get, so I'm shocked that it worked out for him. I know. Yeah. But it's the Polk County Circuit Court in Wisconsin. This is not... Like, how kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say clever. I don't know what word I'm looking for. How sophisticated. How prepared. Yeah. Like, how much precedent. Yeah. Like, this was not something that they were used to seeing mm-hmm. yeah right and at the end of the day that's what it all boils down to it was like this is not something these people were used to seeing 
mm-hmm. used to dealing with at all. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very hard to think that a 15 year old can do that and be in their right mind. Yes. Yes. You know, and I, th- I, and I wonder how much of just that bias it came down to. Totally. And that's where my teacher art comes in and is like, well, you know what? Yeah. Like 15, you're not. No. Yeah, you're so not developmentally done, right? Like, like I said, like you're impulsive, yeah. you're bratty, and that's just like the nature of being 15. Yeah, it's all still cooking in there. Like you're not done yet. That frontal lobe is popping. It is. It's not done popping yet. So that is the case of Bruce Bernizer. I hate him. And what befell his beautiful family. So this is one of those things where like there's not a ton of legacy to it. Yeah. It feels kind of very um, wrongfully forgotten. Yeah. But this was like a beautiful family by most accounts, like a hardworking guy. Mm-hmm. Ruth stayed at home with the girls, very devoted to her family, yeah. both in this, you know, it's their second. They never like legally married, but they were common law married. Like it's their second marriage. Like by all accounts, a lovely Family, family, yeah, and a lovely life. And Unless there's... you believe Bruce's story, right, right, and like that's what kind of gets me at the end of the day is like there's not much to indicate that Rick and Ruth were not trying to provide a good life for their family. Okay, yeah, there's not much to indicate that. Yeah, so which I don't mean to say that I don't believe that he was abused. I don't know. Yeah, there was just nothing. There's no paper trail on that. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. But like looking at the from the outside looking in. It just, like, kind of boggles my mind that I had never heard of this case before. Yeah. Because this was, like, a beautiful family. Again, like, yeah, this kind of blossoming. Like, to me, maybe I'm just, like, sensitive to it as, like, a second marriage, like, person. <laughs> but, like, to me, this is, like, this felt like, here's the new lease on life. Here's, like, the beautiful, like, kind of new thing that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Right? And then for it to be, to go down the way that it did, I think it's just a tragedy that... Yeah. It stuck. Yeah. It really stuck. It's so... It's cases like these that I always do wonder, like, okay, so let's go with Bruce was suffering from depression. He was, like, you know, really struggling and really potentially suicidal. Yeah. You know, if all of that support that they brought in after the murder, mm-hmm. if, you know, a percentage of that was available to Bruce beforehand. Right. Yeah. And it does seem like... You know, he may have been kind of a forgotten, not forgotten in like a big way, but kind of a little in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's got these three little sisters, mm-hmm. you know, he could have, he could have been lost in that shuffle. I mean, right. Awkward enough being a 15 year old boy. Gosh. Yeah. Gosh. And that 1991 style that they were subjected to. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. So there you have it. Bruce Bernizer. All right. Yep. I'm mad at him. But I also feel for a little, like, sad 15-year-old boy. Yeah. I'm mad, mad at him. him. I'm mad at him, but I think I'm madder at the system. Yeah. Which is kind of where I always am. I always, like, every every day of my life. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and on that note. And that's me.